You're listening to Music Tectonics. Welcome back to Music Tectonics. This is a podcast that goes beneath the surface of the music industry to explore how technology is changing the way business gets done. I'm your host, Dimitri Vitsa. I'm the CEO and founder of the PR firm Rock Paper Scissors. And we're going to do something a little bit different this episode. Um, when we first launched the Music Tectonics blog, which was the first thing we did in the Music Tectonics world, I wrote an article about some of the seismic shifts that are happening beneath the surface. I identified things, some of which I thought I was making up, some of which I definitely wasn't. Um, music is like water is not one that I made up. In fact, I heard Mark Mulligan at Meetem this year um, mentioning that he first heard it 19 years ago at Meetem when Gerd Leonard, the futurist, talked about this idea that music will become like a utility with people paying um, a monthly fee. I also identified music as an experience. Music is competing with everything. Music production is in the hands of the masses. And another shift as a result of that, there is substantially more music than ever. And I also talked about how music has been sliced into smaller and smaller pieces, which we can get into. But today, I want to introduce one that I have not put out there to the world, and I'm going to test it out with my guest, Vicki Nelman. Um, who's here with us. How are you, Vicky? I'm really good. Vicky, you may have, have heard her voice on this podcast back, I think it was in March, when we talked about kind of uh, music tech acquisitions and the different patterns there. And Vicky has her own consultancy firm, uh, Cross Border Works, and uh, happy to have you on again. Oh, I'm 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 happy to be here. I, I because I feel like you're you've done such a great job of um, of identifying some of these big shifts that are that are happening under under the surface of the industry. That for many people, we're all just too busy, um, you know, heads down building and and doing business, and and we we need to take a breath and and pay attention to these things. Awesome. Well, I appreciate that. So I threw this one out with you and let's talk about it. So I've got this new theory <laughs> and it's the idea that um, Humpty Dumpty is coming back together again. So that's kind of a ridiculous statement, but this is a seismic <laughs> shift. And if you don't know, Humpty Dumpty is like a, a nursery rhyme that went Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. So there's some... Um, <laughs> maybe uh, gender specificity that doesn't need to be in, in there uh, about kings and men and so forth. But I identify those sort of as like the music industry in a way. Um, uh, here we had this, this very robust physical marketplace in recorded music, and it seems like everything shattered when things first went to digital. The industry, the, the infrastructure were not ready for people to start consuming music in this way. And so many things around the systems and infrastructure fell apart. And you kind of have the sense that everyone's now trying to put everything back together. And so my theory here, Vicky, is that uh, as Humpty Dumpty gets put back together, as the industry gets put back together in digital form or whatever it is that's happening and is merging, it's not you're still going to see the cracks <laughs> as they glue this. This It's funny. <laughs> Humpty Dumpty is frequently um, portrayed as this uh, anthropomorphized egg. I have no idea why. <laughs> um, but I, I picked <laughs> anthropomorphized egg with, with cracks getting glued back together. But but to, you know, to, to bring the metaphor further, this idea that it's coming back together in ways that it never was before and that the systems that um, need to come into play um, 
some of them are kind of parallel with things that existed before. There's the systems of distribution and licensing and marketing, fan interactions, music funding, artist contracts. In a way, a lot of that stuff is no longer relevant, the, the systems that were there. And over the past 20 years, everything's being renegotiated and nobody's on stable ground. We're putting the industry back together, but since music uses and listening experiences are totally different, all the systems are either being reinvented or even scratched. And in some cases, entirely new types of licenses are required for unexpected uses of music. You look at something like our client Lyric Find doing lyric licensing. Lyrics used to be an expense inside liner notes, I guess you could say. And now they're revenue stream and there's right. all these things that need to be in place. Or DJ mixes and remixes like by our other client, Dubset. I won't keep talking about all our, all our clients, but um, the work <laughs> they do. Or things that we're not directly involved with necessarily. But you look at even how user-generated content, little small snippets of music are being used as the soundtrack to memes. And how do you handle that? So uh, just to kick it off, I'm, I'm just throwing out some of the ways. And, and let's just, just get into it and talk about what do you think of this idea and uh, and what does it make you think of, Vicky? Well, I, I love this idea, by the way. I love the Humpty Dumpty and, you know, it is, and it, and it is, you know, the industry had a big fall and it was, it was when Napster came around and, um, and I was working in the industry at that time. And I remember thinking, wow, this is great. All we have to do is legalize this and we're good. And here I am 19 years later still with that same mantra and it's actually happening. And, um, and one of the things that, one of the things that, that, uh, you know, I now, when I reflect back on the last, on the last 19 years of this is that when you have, um, incumbents and you have existing norms, existing distribution models, um, existing marketplaces for music, that's what you build your entire business around. And that's what labels, publishers, management firms, and creators all really did. You know, they knew that they, if they wanted to get played on the radio, they had to do a three-minute single. If they wanted to release an album, they needed neither to do an, you know an EP or a or a CD. And those were both of these are what I would call containers of yesteryear. You know, the only reason that we need a three-minute single is because radio dictated that. The only reason that we need you know, 10 or 11 songs on an album is because the storage of the physical container required that. Mm. Um, but because we've had these, we, this older system of distribution um, through physical goods and retail, as well as promotions in radio, um, that system was already existing when this new digital system came along. So for the first probably eight or nine years um, everyone was really struggling to try to bridge the gap between these two. And what we ended up doing is, um, is keeping the containers of yesteryear, keeping the three minute singles, keeping the, the 12 song albums, keeping them out on a, on a bundled release cycle, and then trying to sell those to consumers in a digital form. Um, that, that actually served a lot of purposes in the early days because it created a, a you know, a, a norm for digital that mirrored the physical world. And that, I would say, manifested in things like a la carte downloads for mm -hmm. albums and, and tracks. And then we've kind of morphed into this cloud-based environment, which at the beginning of that evolution was also still very heavy on you know, what are the playlists that you could put together with singles, you can access an album, um, artists were still releasing and labels were still releasing things on kind of traditional cycles. Um, 
but as we as the market has matured and as i think everyone has now completely bought into this idea that um, cloud-based streaming services are absolutely here to stay uh, ugc is is here to stay uh, there was a lot of resistance at the beginning of, of YouTube and other forms of user-generated content that traditional labels didn't want their music um, bastardized by, <laughs> by users doing things differently than what they may have envisioned in the studio. Uh, but all of these things are, are now, now the new norms. So as a result of that, you know, money is flowing, which is critical, mm-hmm. and artists are starting to artists and labels and publishers are starting to recognize that um, that they can release music however they want. If they want to release a, you know, a 45 second song or a 30 minute song, they can do that. If they want to release one song a month for a year instead of one album. They can do that. If they want to go from the studio and push something live um, without going through all the traditional intermediaries and just get things to market for the fans, they can do that as well. So I see all of these things as like the Humpty Dumpty, um, you know, those are the pieces of the shell that we've picked back up and put mm-hmm. together. And it may not look exactly like, uh, it might not look exactly like it was in the the previous, you know, in the previous physical industry, um, but we're starting to see this take on different shapes and sizes, which is which for me is really exciting because that's where I think innovation and really developing music and um, and systems and ways of distributions and listening in a digital environment um, where we start to really see some some new opportunities emerge. Yeah, yeah you know, I, I'm intrigued by your use of the term container in that in that uh, intro. Uh, th- thinking about this, um, and uh, I, I think you're right. I mean, people had an expectation about how the how music was meant to be listened to, or or, or people desired to listen to music in a certain format. But it really was based in something physical or some something infrastructural that so so they were recreating that in a digital form in a way especially with like the download store for example um or even the idea of singles too we moved from albums to to singles in a lot of ways in that moment of breaking up the album through i think itunes and, and downloads um but i'm also interested as you talk to think a little bit about the fact that a lot of the initial methods for this distribution channel of physical music had a lot to do with what the creators and the industry wanted to do for efficiency and what i feel like is happening with the uses of music now and what's forcing a lot of the humpty dumpty shifts after the the shattered pieces have to be put back together is that they're actually more um, reactive to how people want to experience music or how they are organically experiencing music in a digital environment and that's exactly. something that I think is interesting, you know, like when you think about, you know, certain shifts in the um, format of music from from wax cylinders to <laughs> to vinyl to cassettes, eight tracks, CD, all that cassettes, all all that kind of stuff. Um, those were like breakthroughs. They were opportunity to resell music to an existing audience. They uh, in certain s- situations, they had some uh, some. Um, advantages that previous formats didn't have and so all that stuff makes sense from an industry side a lot of the stuff that's happening in music use right now since there isn't a monetization pathway for some of them 
don't make sense from an industry perspective, but they make so much sense either for the fan or the fan as creator, <laughs> which is right. a whole other seismic shift, which I think is going to continue to feel disruptive to a lot of parts of the industry in that uh, uh, just as we're starting to get comfortable with this idea of cloud-based streaming services, people are going to have to now decide, okay, is this user-generated snippet meets meme type expression of say a TikTok video, is that competing with music monetization? Is it a parallel universe? Is it, um, and if it is a parallel universe, is it one that that's um, that competes or that is just creating more wealth for the industry? Uh, it's so interesting though to think about this idea that some of this stuff is fan-based or fan-pushed um, uses that are forcing the industry to kind of rethink how we think about licensing and ownership actually. Well, exactly. And there are things that are, there are things that are happening now that, um, that I, I look at the gaming industry and, you know, who, 10 years ago, no one would have ever thought, oh yes, you know, I'm going to play video games and I'm going to have my friends, um, record me playing the video game. And then we're going to post it on YouTube and Twitch. Um, and that people will want to watch <laughs> people will want to watch other people playing video games. Um, you know, we wouldn't have conceived that that was a thing, but it is. And so, you know, now when, you know, I'm working with a really exciting gaming company called Beat Saber, and we just licensed Imagine Dragons and got Imagine Dragons in the game. And, um, and we, you know, what we're starting to see is these, these other kinds of platforms that the industry has, has kind of missed out on. Like I would say that gaming is one of these that, you know, what is that container? It, it, it kind of, it, you know, it falls in between all sorts of licensing norms, but it's a great way to get music in front of, of fans where they're immersed in it. They are hearing and experiencing and participating with the music in ways that you don't when you just have a streaming service that's playing music in the background of your office or your, you know, while you prepare dinner. And it also is a way for people in the A&R and the marketing teams of labels to, to reach a different audience and in a different context. Um, so we're starting to see things like that. And a lot of these initiatives I, uh, are really being driven by by artists and by those on the creative side of the industry, not necessarily on the the business side of the industry, because if you you know if you think about um, monetization and you go down a path of you know here are here are a handful of norms of this is how you could license a la carte downloads, this is how you could license an on demand streaming service, this is how the revenue flows from consumers through this very twisted winding path and the royalties make their way to the rights holders and then the creators. Um, there's, you know, there's a, there's a norm that's developed around that. And these new uses where we've got music and games, we've got stems, we've got little sample marketplaces like Splice, we've got um, music that's just little clips are being used in emojis, what are all of these things? Are they promotions? Are they marketing? Are they monetization? Um, they're, you know, it's all really up in the air. And that makes some people crazy, but it makes me really excited because I love trying to figure out, I love trying to figure out those 
those problems and figuring out, well, you know, we don't have to, we don't have to go with the norm because the medium, the platform and the ways that we communicate with consumers in these new environments, um, it's different. And so it warrants a different kind of thinking around licensing. And, um, and I think it, 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 it's also one of the things that I, I have to acknowledge some of the labels and publishers because I do feel like the, you know, when Humpty Dumpty, when Humpty Dumpty took that fall, it was pretty rough. And, um, and everyone, we were all scrambling to try to come up with models. And I've seen a shift, a very distinct shift in the last couple of years that as revenues have been flowing through streaming services and UGC, that we've, we've seen a lifting of you know, a lot of people's perspective inside the traditional rights holders that, okay, you know, a little bit of pressure is off. Let's look at some of these new innovative platforms and we'll figure out what they are um, and, and what the licensing norms are. And I personally believe that almost all of these uses should have some way of monetizing and it could be monetizing. It could be free, but there's a monetization in the sense that if you send an emoji that's got music in it, that there's data and there's a connection and there's there's value to be extracted from that if we have the data organized and if we have the systems organized and if there's if and if we present music in new and innovative environments for people to consume it, they will pay for it. I've never doubted whether or not people will pay for music. Um, and because I feel like it is, it is the most personal medium. Yeah. Let me ask you something about that because, um, there seems to be a, a narrative in the industry right now that says music is being undervalued. And, uh, mm-hmm. I think the, the implication is people are not willing to pay the right amount, you know, pay, pay enough for whatever their music experience is. So, um, I guess, I, I guess I'll just ask that question is if, is is the fact that people are willing to pay something enough of an answer for that um, right. for that kind of measure? <laughs> the streaming services, the nine ninety nine, uh, you know, for the first really ten to twelve years, we were almost exclusively focused on how, as an industry, how can we create a legal model that is going to compete with free and you know, it, it took a long time because it isn't just, it isn't just getting the licenses in place. It's about having the right networks for your devices. It's having the right storage capacity for your devices. It's coming up with all the right metadata schemas and everything that we have to do to be able to get, to get money flowing and get attribution. Um, so I feel like we're, we're, we now we've reached that point where it took us from 2000 to probably 2015 to really have streaming take hold and it has taken hold but because it's been priced at 9.99 for ev- access to everything that's ever been created we have as an industry we have set a value on music at $120 a year now i d- i know that there are if we look at how much money people are willing to pay for live music how much money people pay for merch I believe that we are not anywhere near reaching the true value. And I don't think the, I don't think the answer is to then say, well, you know, Spotify and Apple music and um, Deezer and everybody has to be 
those those services should be thirty dollars a month uh, because I don't I just don't I don't believe that that there's that much value in it um, of having just access to a catalog but I think there's a really big opportunity to bring more focused immersive and specific music experiences that don't compete with the streaming services but that are likely additive and that if you yes it's highly mm-hmm. likely now that music lovers are either on a free or a paid service but um, but that doesn't mean that we've tapped out everything that that they're willing to spend and what are those more high value bite-sized experiences that we can layer on top of it. Yeah. It's interesting to think about the additional ways in which people can experience music and that being additive to whatever their basic streaming subscription is as well. Um, Obviously people are not likely to subscribe to multiple streaming services, so you can't increase the pie that way very um, realistically. Um, and it, it's, it's true that I think we're seeing some uses that are emerging that, um, that are musical, but they don't compete with the idea of listening to music. Um, you may be competing with the time they would have been spending on social media or playing video games. So at music biz, um, there was a, a room of, of, uh, startups working with universal and one of them was song.ai, which was one of these STEM remix apps. It's a tablet app where they take an existing popular song and let you as the user play the song, but in the way that you want to kind of use the same trumpet sound or guitar sound to solo with the rest of the, mm. the song and, and uh, interact in that way. And, you know, I don't think somebody's going to say, oh, I'm not going to put on any music today because I already soloed on this Miles <laughs> exactly. Davis track that exactly. I borrowed. Or, you know, exactly. Like, I'm completely fulfilled. I, think, you know, uh, you know, I don't need any more music. Right. Right. That's more like, well, I'm not going to play video games because I just stared at a screen for an hour playing with music. And then you're going to hop in your car and turn on your music. Or you're going to go cook and turn on your music or go for a jog and turn on your music. I don't. Yeah. In fact, in some ways, it might make the fan base more engaged and want to listen to more music because they're they feel like they're a part of the process as well. So um, one thing that comes up for me is that in addition to the licensing issues in relation to um, these new uses of music is also kind of the artistic issues too. So that example that I just gave where somebody's interacting with stems, it's like the, the owners and the creators, the artists, the songwriters, the publishers are giving up even more control of what their art sounded like. So you mentioned earlier in the conversation that it took a while for people to get used to that with with video, with UGC, user-generated video. Now this is a whole other level where people are actually reconfiguring the song. They're not just adding the song to their own visuals. They're now actually <laughs> recreating the song. Right, right, exactly, exactly. But I think it's, I, I think that, you know, this is this is a point where, I remember in some of the early contracts that I did for licensing, there were there were clauses in those agreements that said, you know, you will not place our music in with in any kind of user generated environment, user uploaded, um, you know, on and on and on, because it 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 wasn't seen as legitimate. And it was sort of like, well, what do you know, why we've already mixed this and it's perfect. So why would we want, and we've released a video and it's perfect. So why would we want users messing around with this? But I think that, that, you know, it, it took a while for everyone to buy into this, but the, the, the fastest growing 
uh, mechanism for people to consume music is out in YouTube and it's UGC and it's there's all these new shapes of remixing and interacting with music and and um, having personalized tracks and personalized experiences. And I, I think that a lot of these ideas have been floating around for a long time, but there was so much resistance to all of it in the industry that, that there was just a limit to how far any of it could go. Um, and so now I'm seeing a shift and on the creative side, people are kind of letting go and saying, yes, okay, let's put this out there. And of course this Beyonce track is, is fantastic, but we don't know, maybe her fans may have a different idea and may I, you know, come up with an idea and, um, and who are we to say that that isn't valid? Um, so it, it's no longer seen as a threat. It's no longer seen as something that you have to try to, to whack a mole and, and put, you know, tamp all of these things down, but to rather embrace it. Um, I also feel like on the, on the, the subject of the devaluing of music, um, I, I still believe that there is a ton of money that is just not making its way through the system and that things like UGC, where users are uploading music, there's an in kind of a complex internal process of fingerprinting and metadata identification and claiming of the video, the publishing and the sound recording. Um, these, these are not scalable for people to be handling and labels and publishers and rights holders to be handling those manually. These, these need machine learning. There's such a massive volume. And when you, when you consider all of the things that need to be done within a really narrow time range to actually achieve the level of monetization that music earns in UGC environments, um, you know, we haven't had the right systems in place to be able to extract that value. And I think that is also changing. And as the legislation changes with things like Article 17 in Europe, that's going to change the framework around, um, it's going to change the framework around how music does extract value. But it is, you know, I see no end in sight to to the growth of of UGC around the world in all different permutations. You know, something we haven't addressed yet in this conversation, which is sort of a, a side effect of this, uh, some of the things we're talking about, is that um, as artists are are getting, uh, as fans are creating um, creating things with with uh, artists' uh, content, they they feel less connected to the fans, or actually feel less connected to the artists, hmm. <laughs> or, or to put it another way. As we're using smaller and smaller snippets of music, and as this UGC um, video content or other content is kind of getting created by fans, this, the the music, these small pieces of music, no longer feel like they're connected to a pathway back to the artist. So I'm curious to see how artists will maintain their relationships with fans 
if you can slice and dice this music and use it in this different different ways. So, I mean, you're already seeing that to some extent when you move from albums to tracks to tracks that are now playlists because people are listening to music based on what they're doing and on their mood rather than a desire to hear an artist story or artist concept. But as you take these slices of music and put them into user-generated content that um, is connected by a meme, like, oh, look, with this music, you always do this type of movement or this little skit, and we're all going to do thousands of variations of that. The connection that the user has with that con with the music is around something that has nothing to do with the artist. <laughs> right, right. Well, it is it is really fascinating. But when we see how users are engaging with music, um, there are, I, I feel like it is kind of, uh, you know, music is ripe for segmentation on not only styles of music and what resonates with different consumers, but also around different experiences and different contexts. You know, it doesn't matter. And in fact, if you're, if you have problems sleeping and you need music to put you to sleep, or if you're using music to concentrate on a project that you need to get done under deadline, these kinds of things, you actually don't want music to, so like music is medicine, you know, you don't want music to, to take the front, take your, the front seat of your attention. You want it to be in the background. You want it to create a particular mood and a, a particular mental state. And, um, and then, you know, what does a deep fan engagement look like? Is that more intense experiences like live music or immersive audio or, you know, VR or gaming? These are things where you are really connected. And I also feel like like Netflix series, I've, I've gotten turned on to music because of great music supervision. And, um, and that's because it's the context in which I'm listening. I feel very connected to hearing an artist and hearing a particular sound. Um, but, but we, you know, we're again, I feel like we're kind of using yesteryear's definition of fan engagement to, to define, well, you know, are you going to go see a, are you going to go see a concert because you heard a, a, a sample in a song, uh, you know, for that sampled artist? I don't know, maybe, maybe not. Um, but we're, but we're just not at a, I, I don't think we're at a place still where we, um, where we understand how, you know, how the fan and artist engagement is really going to, is really going to play out over the long run. Um, I personally love using samples and using snippets and having UGC because it lights up music that you would never have heard. And I have this great story where I was in the car with a friend and his kids and a song, an erasure song came on. And, you know, I, my formative music years were in the eighties and nineties. Cause I'm old. And these kids, they started singing with this erasure song. They knew every lyric and we looked at each other and we're like, how in the world do you guys know this song? And they said, Oh, it was in the magic unicorn game. And so I feel like, well, then, you know, we've just done Erasure, this incredible, um, you know, this incredible service by putting their music in a different in context, in a different environment. And that is a different kind of fan engagement than the olden days of going and hanging out at a record store and, you know, and and uh, asking the person behind the counter to to play the 
the the new erasure release before you buy it. Um, but I don't know if it's better or worse. Yeah, there's so many ways that this is just getting reformulated in, in terms of how people are engaging with with content. And, you know, <laughs> every generation is going to feel differently about <laughs> the style of engagement of the previous generation and vice versa. And uh, I mean, you know, I've got a 19-year-old, so I can open up TikTok right. and get a little <laughs> bit of context about what's going on and get a fast right. course in, in and she's probably aging out of the TikTok generation. And it's, she made me, a, she and my 10 year old oh, made great. a pretty awesome birthday uh, TikTok for me, which was pretty cool. And um, using, using the Beatles, you say it's your birthday <laughs> track, which I don't know what the licensing looks like behind that. But, um, you know, that, that's a way more special moment for me than, than happening to hear the song on the radio or for even somebody Aww. to put that song on. Like they, they've spent hours creating this piece for me. So now that song has a whole other meaning for me um, as well, which is, which is pretty cool. And if you look at the, the memes that are, that are created with music, um, it's just a whole different type of engagement. And, and yeah, I think to some extent, probably a large part of the time, the music is a, is a soundtrack. It's a little bit of a ba background, not like the Netflix experience that you were describing, which I've also had many times tracks that I now have saved in playlists and they actually mean something different because I saw them to a particular TV show or movie, but I never would have discovered them without that. Um, mm -hmm. but, but there's an, this engagement of like, I'm actually creating something. So that, that music is like really ingrained in, in, in people's minds that are, that are making content with it. And it will be interesting to see, you know, going back to my question, how does it, how does the pathway back to the creator, the artist building a, an artist brand around something that's been snippeted here and there. Um, but I think it will happen over time. It's just, I think people feel threatened by it right now because it feels like it's it's out of context. Um, but I think the artists and the creators that are probably going to do the best in the coming years. Right. Um, well, there's no single path to success, first of all. So that's another one of seismic shifts. So I'm not going to say that only the artists that do this will succeed because every time you say that, you find out somebody succeeded in a totally different, unexpected way. But I find that the art you see artists that are very successful with these new formats they get excited kind of like you said you were vicky they get excited about the creativity around new ways of engagement so instead of feeling threatened by it they're jumping in and so like uh, um you know somebody that is figuring out how to engage on something you know a social platform that has this user generated video and music content they feel like they're part of creating the wave rather than somebody has taken something from them so that's an interesting way to kind of go you know go a different direction with what does this mean for the industry it's 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 about oh well this is if i want to build an audience there i have to speak that language and i have to engage in that way and yes exactly i i completely agree with you and that there, there isn't a formula. Um, but one of the things that I feel we do know is that just trying to get on playlists is not enough. And I feel like there has been this inordinate emphasis uh, to get playlist placement. And, you know, we don't know enough yet about that. That feels a lot like the, you know, the containers of people pitching radio, which was where I used to work in another lifetime, where you've got a funnel of lots and lots of music that you wanted to get into a very, very limited number of, of outlets. And in the, in, you know, yesteryear before Humpty Dumpty took that fall, it was radio stations. And now we've kind of morphed that into playlists. And I feel like, you know, there can be two artists on the same playlist 
one blows up and the other one doesn't. We don't know what the science is behind that. And we don't know what the formulas are, but you can't just bet your music career on, um, on getting on playlists. You have to be, you have to be open to engaging with fans in different ways, making your music available in different kind of environments, consumption environments, and have your own, have your own fan base that, that are addressable, that you can reach them in email and in, you know, in SMS and streaming services. Um, because it, you know, as, as, as these patterns of consumption shift and things like TikTok come into the, come into the landscape, you have to be ready and you have to have your music there because if, if it isn't, then those consumers, are, they're not going to make you, they're not going to make their lovely dad a, a Beatles video. They're going to use whatever's in there. And, um, and by having the Beatles in there, it, it's meaningful not only to you on the receiving end, but uh, that next generation that's creating. That's right. I mean, if you're not there, you're pretty much invisible. So that's that's a tricky part. So, um, well, this has been fun, Vicky. Thanks for playing the music tectonic seismic shifts game. <laughs> I've never never structured an episode this way, but um, appreciate you, uh, you know, go, <laughs> taking the risk and going. Yes, on the- exactly. I, I love the I love the image, and um, and I do feel like we're <laughs> we're largely we largely have Humpty Dumpty put back together again, but. Um, but we're, you know, we're still filling in some of those gaps and we're still, we're still figuring, uh, we're still figuring it all out, but it's, it's a really exciting time. And I, and I definitely appreciate you spotlighting all of the, all of the underlying shifts that are happening as a result. Cool. I appreciate that, Vicki. And, you know, maybe it'll turn out the egg metaphor was right, but it wasn't a, a, an egg, like a raw <laughs> exactly. egg. Maybe it was one of those eggs that's been soaked in vinegar and turned into a rubber, rubber ball. And so all the I know. Well, I, after, after having seen, you know, and lived through that period where, you know, the, you know, revenues were tanking and there was just a lot of chaos and we didn't have any sort of paved paths forward. Um, I do feel like this industry is almost undisruptible because, it, you know, if you have that fan and artist engagement, you will, you know, this industry is not at risk it's all of the people in the middle and it's all of the structures and all of the ways that we do business that have to change. But that, that foundation is, is absolutely been there. And, um, and so I, I think that, you know, the, the Humpty Dumpty may have fallen, but I don't think that, I don't think that anyone ever saw that at least I never saw the industry at risk of just being completely, um, it wiped, wiped out, you know, it's evolving. It just evolves very slowly and sometimes painfully slowly, slowly. Yeah. And then picks up speed again. Music is kind of like a, it's kind of like a a drug and it's kind of like a, um, like a a liquid. It seeps everywhere and you can't, you can't stop it really. It's seeping in every part of, of life now, which is, which is cool to see. And, and, um, obviously for the creators and and the rights holders, it's good when it pays. But so thanks again, Vicki. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. And, uh, and keep up the great work. Thank you. And thank you for listening to the Music Tectonics podcast. Do me a favor, subscribe to it on your favorite uh, podcasting platform, post about it, spread the word. We're still young and would love to get your feedback. If you have ideas about what the seismic shifts are that are influencing the music industry, I'd love to hear from you. You can find me on Twitter at Dimitri Vitz on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, everywhere. You can email me at music at rock, paper, 
scissors.biz, B-I-Z, and let me know what you think are some of the most interesting shifts beneath the surface. Or you could also come to our conference called Music Tectonics in Los Angeles, October 28th and 29th, 2019. Uh, we'll be taking over the Skirball Cultural Center on the 29th of October. And these are the types of conversations we'll be having. You can get a $50 discount code to the conference, which is already very affordable, by going to musictectonics.com and signing up for our newsletter. Thanks so much for listening. You're listening to Music Tectonics.